Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Football Diary podcast, a smaller programme of fixtures this weekend, just the five Premier League games to discuss, but obviously plenty of talking points for myself and Miles to work through today. Chelsea moving to the top half with a win over Fulham, Spurs come from behind at Old Trafford to take a point, Luton snatch a late controversial equaliser against relegation rivals Burnley. But the big news of the week, the big talking point, Kevin De Bruyne is back. And it has to be said, already looking in exceptional form after his return from his injury layoff. He helped Man City to a 3-2 whenever Newcastle, coming back from 2-1 down, off the bench, scoring, assisting. Blimey, Miles, City, they've missed Kevin De Bruyne, haven't they? He's just a level above at the minute. I'm just really smug and proud that I put him in my fantasy team this week. I knew it. <laughs> Instant impact. Yeah, this game was really exciting, actually. I really enjoyed watching this game. And the first half, even before De Bruyne, it was end-to-end and thrilling. So when you introduce a player of his calibre and quality, it's only ever going to get better. And it's exactly what City needed because they are struggling with injuries at the moment. Obviously, Haaland being out and De Bruyne, and that's their main goal threat and their main source of goals. So, I mean, City aren't exactly a team that lack resources to, to cover those positions. Obviously, Phil Foden stepped up fantastically in De Bruyne's absence but when he does come back and you see those moments from him it's it's hard not to just absolutely love watching him even as a City player like obviously neither of us have any kind of affiliation or affection for Man City in fact quite the opposite but you can't help but always adore Kevin De Bruyne because what he does with the football is just so fantastic to watch he's so classy and elegant on the ball that like even his goal he just strides through the pitch and passes the ball into the corner through a player's legs. Like like it's nothing. And he, this is a player that's yeah. been out injured all season. Incredible. Absolutely fantastic contribution. It was a quality game, actually, for the, the quality of the goals especially, wasn't it? And uh, mm. City, I think, in some ways displayed why they are struggling sometimes this season but with the goals they conceded. Um, I mean, they opened mm. the scoring, actually. Let's talk about Bernardo, Bernardo Silva's goal, first of all. That cheeky, Lovely. sublime back heel. And yeah. it's up there with some of the best back heel goals I've ever seen, I think, isn't it? It was really, really mm. well executed. And ones that spring to mind, I think, are Gianfranco Zola for Chelsea uh, in the FA Cup. I can't remember the year, maybe 97. Um, even Alessia Russo at the Euros with her back heel mm. goal. Um, I think it was against Sweden, wasn't it? Both quality. Yeah, it but this one, the execution, the intent that he put into it was just sublime, wasn't it? He's, he's a key player as well, isn't he, uh, Bernardo Silva? Oh. I don't know how a player who's won the treble last year and been there as long as he has is still kind of underrated and undervalued in the Premier League like he, he's comfortably one of the best players in the league and has been for the last three four years he's, he's fantastic that whole move was brilliant as well like the ball from Doku across the pitch to mm. get Walker into it and then the ball into the box was excellent and the football man City were playing in that first 20 minutes in particular was frightening to watch actually and Newcastle were did very well to keep themselves in the game and even get ahead at that stage. But yeah, when you've got a player like Bernardo Silva, then it's easy to forget you've got the absences of De Bruyne and Haaland, isn't it? Because he is someone that seems to thrive on these moments of magic. He finds himself pockets of space. His technical ability is outstanding. Like he's he's always got that finish in his locker. And it might be mm. a back heel like this. It might be a volley from 25 yards. It might be him passing the ball into the corner like we saw De Bruyne do. He seems really capable of, of loads of different moments because his technical ability is so strong. Isn't it crazy how much the attack from Man City has transformed, though, when De Bruyne is on the pitch? Jeremy came mm. off the bench and 
it's been described as kind of like a quarterback in the way that he just receives mm. the ball wherever he, he needs to and, and he spreads yeah. play so well. I don't think there's a position he can't play in midfield. He's, he's an all-rounder. He's one of the best all-round midfielders, I think, in Premier League history and arguably the best player in the Premier League at the moment, surely. I mean, he said himself, mm. you know, I've really missed this. I've missed being involved. I've missed scoring. I've missed assisting. But I think even in the previous game before this, he, he assisted on his return off the bench, didn't yeah. he? And yeah. I think him... And I think Dave was saying the same, Rodri as well, are the two Man City players, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but they're like a level above. That Man City team across the board is quality. But them two, they are world-class truly, aren't they? They're like a different mm. level to everybody else. Yeah, obviously Haaland fits into that bracket as well, I think. I don't think he does yet. Probably... I think they can replace it. Nah, the other two, I really on. don't think they can. Nah, come on. 50 goal early in Haaland. He's, <laughs> he's the best number nine out and out number nine in the world. So you've got to say he's world class. I think I think those three is a spot. In, that's a terrifying prospect. Yeah. And actually, we're still talking about a team that can't integrate John Stones back into the team for fitness. And Edison went off injured in this game, which was a big, big blow for them. You could see he, he had to come off. Because even in the what yeah. two minutes he was on the pitch after he picked that knocker, it nearly led to some disastrous outcomes. But yeah, I think generally the Man City squad's really interesting. Maybe this is where Guardiola does deserve some credit because it's very easy to say it's expensively assembled. We'll get onto the problems with that later on, I'm sure. But actually, when you look at the names on the team sheet, are you particularly frightened by the vast majority of them? Or are you just frightened of them in that system under Guardiola? Like I looked at yeah. the defence in this game and I find it really interesting that Nathan Ake is still a starting centre-back for Man City right now. Like, yeah. And this is a team that just won the treble. That doesn't see, I didn't envisage them being at that point right now. So, yeah, I think those two are the superstars. But that's what Guardiola has always been able to do, isn't it? Get the best out of midfielders like that. Actually, if you look at the output of, like we talked about Bernardo Silva, the output of Gundogan last season... Guardiola's oh, yeah. midfielders do tend to perform to that next level because that's where the focus of all his players. He feels like a game is won there. I think he said at the weekend, the final third isn't about tactics. It's about class and moments of magic, I think he said. But the midfield is very clearly a tactical role that Guardiola invests so much into. So, yeah, Rodri and De Bruyne are always going to be the ones that shine for him, aren't they? Yeah, well, they're at a level now as well where they can have players slotting into the positions that are being vacated by injury, for example, and mm. obviously they've managed okay without De Bruyne. Yeah. He has obviously raised their game since coming back in these last couple yeah. of substitute appearances, but they can also afford to, to kind of blood in youth as well. And the winning goal was scored by 20-year-old Norwegian Oscar Bob as well, which was another really technically brilliant goal. Right, he received the ball to his feet, shuffled to the left and then hit it with his mm. right. Great finish, mm. and he's been waiting in the wings for his time, hasn't he? And took it brilliantly. Mm. And another, another talent, it seems, on the Man City production line. Yeah, and another weird comment from Guardiola of if he decides to stay at Man City, they've got another big player on their hands for the next 10 years. It's like Guardiola's like, yeah, I might sell you. Look what I did to Cole Palmer. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, no, it was fantastic. And I think he's been someone that Guardiola's been keen to give chances to this season. Obviously, we've seen him in Europe already. So, a first Premier League goal is excellent for him. And the fact that he can be on the wavelength with De Bruyne already to be making those sort of runs into the box, that's really encouraging. The composure he showed that late in the game, that young to, yeah, like you say, that excellent touch from left to right was yeah. superb to take the keeper out of it. The calmness of a young man like that. So, yeah, an exciting prospect again. But 
I, I begrudgingly say that about Man City because they don't need exciting prospects because they go out and spank a hundred million on your best player as well. Well, that raises another question, I guess, in another for another time about um, giving youth a chance and actually sticking with them. And I think Chelsea having this same conversation with uh, Conor Gallagher as well, one of their own. But you know, he's had his chance, Oscar Bob, and he's taking it. And I think that's all he can do. And uh, hopefully, we'll see more of him because he looks like a real talent, doesn't he? And I think it makes you think about City's departures in the summer, especially like the likes of Riyad Mahrez, and think, well, actually, I can mm. see why he let Mahrez go because he's got plenty of players waiting in the wings to kind of take that position. And, Probably knows his squad better than anyone else. I mean, how many pundits had Oscar Bob down as somebody that was going to come on and score a great winning goal like that? So, mm. oh, God, he looks very good the... at what he does, isn't he? Waiting in the wings was a nice little pun there, mate. I don't know if you meant that one. <laughs> but totally also worth... but I'll take that. Worth having a brief conversation on, obviously, the ruling and the referee instruction over offsides. So, the linesman delays put his flag up for a clear offside Correct. for Newcastle. Edison picks up an injury and goes off for the game. Now, we've, we've been waiting for moments like that. In fact, I think they've already happened, to be fair. Yeah. But again, another case of why are we playing? Why are we taking the decision out of the human's hands and making them delay an outcome that seemed really clear? Obvious. And then making this risk for a player. I understand that, obviously, with VAR in, the margin for error is under so much scrutiny that you don't want to stop the play if a goal could go in. I do get that to a degree, but if the linesman's flagging anyway, just it, it just seems wrong, doesn't it? Like, if Edison yeah. now, take the football out of it. Think about him as a human being. Like, he's injured. Like, if that takes him off yeah. his feet for a while, takes him away from his his normal day-to-day routine, is that worth it? Like, I just think mm. that's such a bizarre bit of logic, really. It's a, it was avoidable, wasn't it? And I think Kyle Walker made the mm. point to the referee that uh, when it's that obvious, why keep the, the play going? And he's, he's got a point, yeah. to be fair. And I think was the injury because Walker collided with him as well? Was it Walker that kind of inflicted it? I actually can't remember who collided with him. I thought it was um, Isak, but maybe it was his own yeah. player. But the point is, I think it's, players, it's, yeah, sure. players almost do hesitate slightly thinking, what's well, clear offside? But they can't do that now. Yeah the fear of play on and maybe it's not offside mm. and you do start to doubt yourself and I think the decisions that defenders make are now clouded a little bit so yeah it's a weird rule um, a ridiculous one really but City's yeah. still very much in the title hunt only a couple of points behind Liverpool um, yeah, looking ominous really with the, yeah. with the De Bruyne return as well it's it's kind of tough to see Man City drop points uh, sorry for Villa drop points mate really sorry to bring that up uh, we'll forget about the Villa game because that actually was a really poor game wasn't it against Everton 0-0 Really lacking in quality, but they will be gutted yeah. as well to not and be, you know, within touching distance of, of a title race. Villa obviously were looking at if they had won this game, they'd have been level on points at the top of the league. So it's very annoying that it's another game that realistically on paper looks like one they should be taking points from. You can't, you can't be too upset about it. The season's still phenomenal, and we're still in with a really good shout at top four. So I'll take it. But yeah, I was a bit annoyed. Well, it's not over, mate. The season's far from over. And I think Tottenham have got True. that message loud and clear. There's a point where Spurs mm. seem to be looking like they were sliding out of the top four. But they're looking pretty resilient too. I think the way they fought back into the game against United at Old Trafford, making it two all in the end, and Rodrigo Bentancur mm. scoring a, a fantastic equaliser. They were mm. by far the better team against United mm. and I'm you know I'm fine to admit that. I'm happy with the point. Absolutely ecstatic. I think Spurs fans on balance <laughs> will be too because the amount of people that have got out of the team right now, it's it's a, it's kind of remarkable they're still within top four 
contention, really, because they shouldn't be. They've had some key players missing. Mm. I know a lot of teams can say that, but I think the way they're fighting to stay there before Son comes back, before Madison comes back, almost makes you believe that maybe Tottenham have got another gear to go into once that happens. Yeah, and it, we talk about the attacking absentees, but actually defensively as well. Like You've got a player like Christian Romero who's had suspensions and injuries so far. Uh, Mickey van der Ven, who looked like yeah. he was really establishing himself, obviously had a period out as well. And Tottenham clearly see a gap that they can find themselves in at the end of the season because they're invested in January as well. Obviously, Timo Werner's come in to kind of cover that absence of Son, which is an interesting <laughs> like for like, I suppose. But he looked he looked decent enough in this game. Got an assist, didn't he, for the equaliser? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Dragosin's come in as well. So they're obviously investing in the squad and, and doing all they can to keep up that top four conversation despite these these issues. But when you've got a new manager in, you've got to back them and, and help them get to those goals. So it's an interesting one with Spurs because I think almost the fact that they were the better team in this game is what makes me think that they might not get top four. Because realistically, they should be coming away with three points. I know it's United yeah. at Old Trafford, but actually, in current times, that's a guaranteed three points for a top four contender, surely. It's it's a difficult one. Uh, I find it funny as well that you say you're really happy with a point. How What a change of times it is from lads, it's Tottenham, to I'm ecstatic with a point at home to Spurs. That's yeah, well, a quick word on United. Actually, we I just think I'm really struggling to see how we can balance our midfield because I think in this game mm. we played Christian Eriksen alongside Paul Cobby, mind you, who's just carrying the team at the minute at 18 years old. Mm. He is the, the driving force, but there's only so much mm. running that young lad can do, you know, three, four times in a, in a fortnight. That's just too much to mm. ask. So, yeah, I think sometimes Eriksen Hogg makes these baffling decisions, especially in midfield, and I'm thinking the balance is so wrong and Tottenham yeah. just made it look easy playing around them in some ways. And Hannibal has gone today. Yeah, on loan with an option to buy and I think his yeah. fee is reportedly to be about 16 million 20. euros. 20. Oh, 20 right, million euros 20, yeah. for him. It's just peanuts, isn't it? And I think United make that mistake so many times. Just They get I'm... nothing back for players, do they? I was so surprised when I saw the option to buy. If it had been yeah. a loan, I would have been at that because United are missing depth in that area of the pitch anyway but when they saw the option to buy I suppose that is FFP again isn't it like it's a youth product that they can claim pure profit on but that is bizarre United have got players to come back obviously Lissandro came back in this game didn't he Mason Mount's nearing a return as well but I don't know man Spurs Spurs to be fair to them they've probably dealt with their injuries far better than Man United have that's half down to a manager that seems to have a plan and yeah. half down to the fact that their squad's been invested in a bit better over the last 12 months, you would say. Yeah, I feel like they can almost make signings and additions to their team with no fear as well because they've got that money from Kane sitting in the bank mm. and you know they're not going to be mm. too worried about FFP like some teams, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, yeah, Spurs, mm. I think, deserve credit. Uh, they're still in the hunt for top four mm. and I don't see that changing anytime soon, so fair play. But mm. at the other end of the table, should we talk about Luton? Luton Burnley, relegation six-pointer where each team got a point. Yeah. Um, 92nd minute equaliser for Luton, I think it was. Um, and the big question is, this is controversial, Vincent Company was absolutely fuming. I think you can kind of see why. James Trafford appeared to be fouled. Um, mm. I think he went down a bit too easily for my liking. But did Adebayo mm. push Trafford for that goal? Did you expect it to be disallowed? 
Yeah, I definitely expected it to be disallowed uh, because goalkeepers get such a heavy protection from Premier League officials normally that 99 times out of 100, in fact, probably more than that, that is given as a foul against the keeper. Yeah. So I was very surprised that it didn't. Do I mind that it didn't? Probably not. I think goalkeepers are overprotected. And I mm. think, generally speaking, if that was a defender jumping for a header, he doesn't go down like that. And I don't think it's given for a foul. The only thing that I think goes against Adebayo is he turns his back and it does look like he backs into Trafford's path, which at that point you are not attempting to play the ball at all, are you? I, th- I would have given it as a foul, I think, on this occasion. <laughs> I'm really surprised that this is the one where they took a stand. And as soon as VAR were checking it, you thought, oh yeah, that's getting overturned, then, isn't it? So quite Agreed, surprising yeah. to me that it, it wasn't. So I can see why companies upset, particularly when I think a game like this, you really see but Burnley are going down, aren't they? I thought they played well though for spells I thought they attacked really well and they showed flashes of what made them Mm -hmm. um, a leading team in the championship and the kind of football they haven't really been able to play this season but obviously against Mm. Luton it's kind of very similar level opposition so they could they could play you've got to win yeah you've got to win that's the thing and that's why I think Um, they're going down that they didn't they just can't score yeah and Mm -hmm. I mean that's why this 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 result and this equaliser as well will kind of grate even more because mm. it could have been a vital three points and it wasn't. Mm. And Luton, I mean, by far the happier team in this occasion. I think Rob Edwards was, afterwards was clearly happy with that point because it means there's a cushion there still for Luton. But mm. in terms of Luton, actually, they're proving time and again and they've got this resilient streak as well. Um, I mean, there's a lot of factors as to why that might be. I just think they seem to know what they can do to play to their strengths more than their rivals at the minute, especially Burnley, who don't know who they are. Their identity is kind of up in the air, isn't it? How they play seems completely different to what we expected. I didn't have Luton down as being still in contention of escape in the bottom three at this stage of the season, I'll be honest. But I think I've got to give credit to Ross Barkley for the signing, first of all, of him, but also the way he's performed. You could mention Andros Townsend as well, but Barkley is actually the one who's probably playing the best form of his career at the minute, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, potentially, actually. It's funny because, obviously, it's a player that we saw at Villa when he had that loan spell and he looked really sharp for a while and then it kind of fell off. So you kind of anticipate that that could have happened again. But it Mm. seems like he's really thriving at Luton. Obviously, Rob Edwards has received so much praise throughout his career for the kind of coach he is. So maybe Barkley's really appreciated working with him. He's the main man at Luton right now as well, which I think is the sort of profile that he's always been looking for at a club. When he had that at Everton that seemed like a real success story for him. And then he went to Chelsea and kind of faded into the background. Then he had that kind of mini renaissance at Villa where he was working really well with Grealish. And then it just died off again. So it's mm. it's nice, actually, to see this late redemption arc for Russ Barkley. Not one that I anticipated. I did say that I thought Luton would stay up this year. I thought they would have enough. But I, did. I didn't anticipate it being led by Russ Barkley. But he, he's been excellent. I mean, it is a player that we knew had bundles of ability like he's always been someone that's been very highly rated from an early age he came through at this stage of his career I think a lot of us if we're honest probably laughed at this sign in a little bit and it's turned out to be really fruitful for them I worried that it was going to be a bit of a Jesse Lingard to Nottingham Forest kind of deal like get promoted get a big player and who's who's had some experience with England and actually they're just going to sit on the bench and do nothing for you and he's really stepped up 
he's helped carry that team and given them that kind of creative force he's really really effective at driving the ball up the pitch for, yeah, for Luton definitely. and when you're a team that kind of has to sit back and learn to defend at times that's really helpful if you have got that outlet that's going to help you move quickly up the pitch so yeah, I think he's been fantastic it's funny, there's been talk of maybe the likes of Jesse Lingard swallowing his pride and moving to a team like Luton because it seems like mm. maybe they could get the best out of him. But I think the difference with Ross Barkley is his mentality is so driven to sort of stay at that level. I almost feel like he's better being the big fish in a small pond, Barkley. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like at Everton, I feel like that was a team that kind of almost built themselves around him in some ways and played to his strengths. And he's a bit of a maverick too. I remember in his early career he was being described in a similar kind of vein to how Paul Gascoigne used to play. Yeah, I, I think obviously that. premature hype always kind of is a <laughs> bad thing, isn't it, for players? But he has that kind of, um, what's the word? Like presence on the field, doesn't he? Of being everywhere. Yeah, swagger. Spark of genius sometimes when it comes mm. to it. So I think he is a fantastic signing and, and half a pound for the, you know, the wages they're probably paying for him. I think he's, he's probably one of the signings of the season and it's premature to say that. But he's been fantastic. There's been calls for him mm. to be called up to the England squad again. Again, a bit, a bit of competition there for that, but you know that's. No. I think he's been. I think he's been great. Yeah, he absolutely has, and that's not to discredit him by saying that. But absolutely not a chance he should be near the England <laughs> squad if we're honest. I think uh, what we learned about these two teams though is that um, they're not that good, and I know you know there was it was an entertaining mm. game, but I think you can see the difference in quality between these two teams and, and teams even slightly below them like Forest. I think there's a level there that they're never going to get to. Maybe it's financial, who knows, but it's, um, it's difficult I, to see them getting out of trouble, isn't it? I think Luton might be okay still. But I, I've, I've got this feeling they'll pull themselves out. I mean, here's the difference. Burnley, like you said, played some really nice football, but didn't win the game. Luton weren't really in the game, but found another late goal. They've scored a lot of late goals this season are, to get themselves yeah. back into games. And if you've got that kind of, like you said, resilience... That's the sort of thing that can keep you in the Premier League. That's the thing that's going to grind out results. Think about that running at the end of the season when it is just get points on the board by any means necessary. Can you see Burnley doing that? I can't. But I, I can see Luton yeah. doing it. Yeah, I hope so. What a story that would be. Luton escaping yeah. relegation against all the odds. That would be amazing. Um, mm. here's, here's a conundrum for you. See if you can answer this. Many football fans mm. have tried and failed and still figuring it out. Are Chelsea any good, is the question. <laughs> because after spending the money they've spent, we're all clear that they should be pretty good. Um, but there's performances like the game against Middlesbrough in the, in the Cup that make you think, oh, they're not that good, are they? But then they've won four home games in a row for the first time since July 2020 mm. by beating Fulham. And you've got to ask yourself, are they actually building some kind of momentum now? Is the project, and I hate that term, actually making sense to people is Pochettino any good can you see them pushing for Europe so many questions around Chelsea so mm. pick that pick that one apart mate if you can it's dangerous for me to pick this apart because we've just drawn them in the FA Cup and <laughs> I don't want anyone to be able to play back to me me saying no Chelsea oh, are not good after they've beaten you know us. I will. but no Chelsea are not good I would say I actually I don't think they were necessarily the best side in this game I think there's a few things they've improved Okay, we can say that definitely. They look yeah. more solid at the back now. And at the start of the season, that was a real struggle. That despite having 
it looked like a team where the defence was going to be the best part of their game. It was by far the worst at the start of the season, it felt like. And a lot of their, their players were underperforming. Now, Pochettino's definitely got them looking a bit more solid. So that helps. Like a clean sheet against Fulham, it's no mean feat. I think yeah. at the moment, the kind of form that some of the Fulham's attacking players have been in, you would have expected them to pose a bit more of a threat. And perhaps they should have at times. There are a couple of chances that, that I think they probably should have taken on another day, maybe we're talking about a very different result. But, of course, there are positives about Chelsea. The investment they've made means it's inevitable that there's going to be some positives. Cole Palmer, obviously, is the biggest positive right now. They invested in a very good young player who's showing bags of confidence and carrying them through quite a difficult period, it feels like. There's positives to be seen in players like Conor Gallagher, like you mentioned, whether that be they can bring some revenue back in for him or actually acknowledging his performances on the pitch have been very good. So Chelsea, you're right. They are a bit of a conundrum to, to for anyone to understand because I still think this has got to be going down as a failure of a season because the amount they've invested in the squad, the manager, mm-hmm. they have to be doing better. It's unfortunate, obviously, to have someone like Christopher Nkunku come back, look sharp, get injured again. But realistically, do we have much sympathy for Chelsea when it comes to their performances. I don't think I don't think this is an over it feels like there's no. a bit of a false position even being in ninth. And they're not What you good. think they should be lower than ninth? I mean a one nil win at Fulham wasn't that inspiring really, was it? They've had a few no. games like that recently where they've got through, got a win, but you've looked at them and gone, I don't actually think you're you're very good. A couple of key players are helping them. Obviously Cole Palmer's been massive. Madawake yeah. has had some good form when, when he's been on the pitch as well. So there are bright sparks there, but Amanda Broya is not a Champions League striker, is he? Let's be honest. Well, I think we've said before, if they had Ben Chilwell and Reese James fully fit all the time, that changes the dimension of the team, changes the dimension mm. of the attack as well, because them two going forward are fantastic. I don't think Gusto and, and Colwell are particularly good at that position either. I think Colwell's mm. definitely a centre-back. Dizassi's not that yeah. great. I think Gusto probably should have been sent off in this game. I don't know if you saw that. But in the first yeah, half, I think so it's too. a dangerous yeah, tackle. But I honestly reckon, even checking VAR for that, they thought it was too early in the game to dish out a red. I hate it when they do that because it changes the game. Of course it does. But it was dangerous well, in my opinion. Yeah, he, he got sent off against Villa for a very similar challenge on Luca Dean. And yeah. I, I actually can't see much of a difference in it. So I'm not really sure why that one wasn't given. Um, yeah, but I think even that, of what's wrong with Chelsea in that challenge because that was inexperienced that that early in a game you'd lunge into a challenge like that and they don't seem to be that well settled but I don't know it feels harsh to just criticise them after they've just won another game I was I was quite surprised to see their league position after this win I'll be honest yeah. I didn't realise that they'd snuck up quite that high because it felt like they were still 12th or 11th they were in for ages wasn't it so yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's not been that long since we were talking about whether Pochettino was the right man for the job or not. A few results in football, it's a fickle nature, always changes those things. But do we think that Chelsea have turned a mad corner? Do, are they going to go out in January and spend some money? Ugh, who knows? They're, they're so unpredictable. It's mad because you say, obviously, it's well documented they've spent so much money. It's a, over a billion pounds in a year. But you look at their starting eleven. I know they've got injuries and absentees. Mm. But even their bench, you look at it and think, who's the game changer there? Mudrick, you know, he's not really an impact player right Weak, now, is he? 
Yeah, their their goalkeepers in. They had Bettinelli on the bench as their reserve goalkeeper. You know, he hasn't played a start starting Clever. role in any team for about a decade. It feels like it's just so <laughs> little quality there. And even when everybody returns from injury, I'm not sure what pieces fit where. I don't know if yeah. it makes much sense. I can't no. see many leaders in the team. If Thiago Silva's no. taken out the picture, I mean, how long's he got left at top level football? Maybe this season, mm. and that's it. You'd imagine. So yeah, weird for Chelsea, isn't it? And I'm guessing they're keeping a close eye on the FFP kind of blinkers as well to see where they sit. And I don't know how the hell they're escaping any kind of attention from the Premier League because they've obviously amortised contracts from all these players over multiple years, which has now been kind of curbed a little bit. But that's Mm. scooting around FFP a little bit. They're selling players. Talk of Gallagher going as well to Tottenham for 50 Mm. odd million at some point. A homegrown player who's actually playing really well, really liked by the manager. Mm seems an odd direction for the club to go in just to try and balance the books and it's kind of quite soulless and sad when that becomes the case isn't it but let's talk about ffp shall we are on the subject mm. obviously yeah, the on. news the news now that forest are now um i've been, I've been told they breached um ffp um not by much but i think enough obviously to raise the alarm everton once again have been flagged and i don't mm. know how that sits with their current situation obviously 10 points been docked already so mm. I'm, I'm a bit of a football nerd. We both are. I can't really figure out what the situation is here. Can you? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Obviously, we did a special podcast on the Everton situation a little while back with Mike from the Unholy Trinity podcast. And he felt very strongly that Everton were being a bit of a scapegoat for the league. And actually makes a very compelling argument as to why I, I probably agree with him. Um, and it feels like they're doubling down on that while Everton are in the middle of an appeal. And actually, Everton's mm. statement was really interesting to hear because they were basically saying, why are the Premier League able to charge us twice for the same thing? No yeah. other governing body would do that, including the EFL. So it's a, a valid point. I don't really understand how, when there's a current appeal being lodged for those exact charges, how you can then throw them at them again. It yeah. feels very, very odd. The Forest one is a difficult one for me because... I can't say I'm surprised that it's happened to Forest. I think, what, they spent £250 million since they've been promoted. That is a lot. Obviously, mm-hmm. they had that summer where they signed, what, 20, was it 27 players in the end? Yeah, I think they continued something, to in the January as well. yeah. yeah, and obviously, I'm not necessarily being critical of that because they needed a squad rebuild. The amount of players they had left over from the Championship campaign was very small. However, that is, again, down to ownership, so it's kind of their own their own doing so it's not necessarily a surprise to see these teams finding themselves in these situations the surprising factor comes from the fact that it's only these teams doesn't it yeah because yeah it's been well documented and talked about for a very long time that there's what 115 plus charges against man city we're still yet to see any action of that yet they've managed to get two cases out against everton this season which is wild to me obviously you mentioned then chelsea have spent a billion pounds since todd Bowler came in how on earth can that be okay? But Everton building a new stadium is a problem. A stadium yeah. that would generate them a lot of revenue. It's, uh, I don't know, how fit for purpose is FFP? Do I just not understand yeah. it? Do you not understand it? Maybe, maybe that's what it is that us as football fans, until you, you really what, delve like, further into it, we're never going to understand it. I feel like the basis of FFP has got really good intentions. And think about it, yeah. you've got rules in place to stop a club from continuing to buy players before they mm-hmm. sell others. So you're not allowed to stockpile players. You're not allowed to 
spend silly money without making money. And I think the quickest mm. way to make money in football at the minute is to sell your assets, isn't it? Yeah. So it's becoming yeah. a market of, of balance. And I feel like that's where, for example, the Bundesliga is streets ahead of the Premier League in terms of watchability and, and teams being more sustainable. And obviously it's part from, mostly fan-owned as well. The Premier League has been so far detached from reality financially that I feel like this is needed. But clearly it's flawed. Like there's just, it's, it's yeah. penalising the wrong teams. And actually the teams that are the most financially affluent on paper, at least, they're the ones that are getting away with it. Man City's a different kind of fish, though, because the accusation yeah. is that these are incorrectly reported revenue streams, which is hard to prove. But yeah, mm. it's massively weighted against teams like, for example, Luton, who are never going to make the kind of revenue needed to make any big signings, aren't mm. they? No, not in, under this current kind of regime and the way that it's being structured. It's a weird one for me because in theory, it is a good thing for the clubs because it's dressed up as the, the breach for Forrest and Everton is labelled as breaking Premier League profit and sustainability rules. Now, of course, you want your football club to be sustainable. That, that in itself is a no-brainer. Common sense says that, of course, things should be put into place to protect the sustainability of football clubs. Look at how many clubs we've seen in absolute turmoil over the last mm -hmm. few seasons even go completely out of business because they weren't sustainable. No one wants that to happen to their club. What I can't understand is then you look at a team like Everton and, okay, you can't just spend as much as you want and expect to get away with it. Fine, you've breached some laws, so there has to be some sort of penalty. But you're talking to a team and saying, the problem we've got with you is your current model isn't sustainable financially. So your consequence is we're going to fine you. We're going to take more money off you. That doesn't make sense. And we are going to take points off you, which could threaten your position in the league. And therefore, you could lose endless amounts of revenue after you've spent a load of money bringing in players on big wages. So then what do you do? So if you want to be critical of a team like Forest for spending 250 million on players, imagine how much money they've got put into the club and their wage structure right now. If Forest get relegated because of a points deduction, is that yeah. sustainable? Or are you actually furthering the problem? Now, I don't know what the answer is. I'll be honest. I'm here to talk about how good Villa are most of the time, not how to save football. But I can look at that and say, if you are letting state-backed clubs spend whatever they want, have all these charges against them, essentially cook their books, allegedly, and get away with it. But then you are looking at a club like Forest or Everton with a really rich history and excellent fan base who are looking to excel and just keep up. That's essentially yeah. what it is. Everton and Forest aren't blowing the kind of money to go and try and win the Champions League. Forest haven't gone, do you know what, I'm going to go and stick 700 million on Kylian Mbappe just to make him come. They've just done what they could to remain competitive. And then yeah. this is the level of penalisation they get. That I don't know. Something just doesn't seem morally right about that to me. And I suppose that's football these days. There's not much of that to go around, is there? No. Well, another like inequality, especially with the Forest situation, is any promoted teams, their allowance is kind of lowered by a decent amount for every year they've spent in the championship in that yeah. three-year period. So obviously Forest have only had one year in the Premier League out of those th mm. last three. So their allowance is considerably lower than it should have been. But they've had to spend money because their squad was so depleted when they got promoted. So it's mm. weird catch-22. And I think the argument for Forest is that they received obviously a decent amount of money for Brennan Johnson after September, which is like the cut-off point for FFP's financial year change. 
And they argued, probably rightly, I think, that they got more money for Brennan Johnson by waiting than if they'd have taken maybe 30 million before that September mm. cuts off. So financially, that 15 million extra makes perfect sense. Why is that not factored in? And I think that's pretty much the margin for Forrest passing FFP or not. It's just that Brennan Johnson transfers date of it taking place. That's crazy. Isn't the, it? Common sense needs it, to come into that. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. Common sense has to be a thing with that. And financially, of course, that makes far more sense. It's difficult because then how do you legislate for that? Like, How do you actually police that? If you leave it that subjective, then it's really hard to ever rein anyone in, isn't it? Because you could say that, like I said to you, like yeah. Chelsea, for example, we want to be critical of them for spending a billion pounds. But actually, is that a billion pounds spent and then lost because they bought assets in who could go up in value so could chelsea argue yeah all right we spent this much money but it's an investment that actually we have evidence to suggest is going to yield us a more positive return are they going to make profit on nani madawake one day you can't that's so subjective he can break his leg and end his career and then be worth nothing and then that is pure loss all of a sudden so it's really difficult to balance what seems just and what doesn't to me, what FFP should be in to do is you can spend X amount of money based on how much money you bring in. And that is based on transfers alone. I don't think stuff like the stadium should come into it for Everton. I think that's bizarre because you are building an asset there that is going to help increase your revenue, your status within your city. And realistically, yeah. if you're trying to elevate football as the world's game and England as its premier division, Surely you want to see that. You don't just want Man City on their own running away with it every year. That That's not entertaining. Otherwise, you end up with one of these leagues that gets labelled a farmer's league, a non-competitive league. I, I, I find it bizarre that Man City, is, uh, not Man City, sorry, the Premier League are so hell-bent on just maintaining a hierarchy like that. I, I think it's really odd. I Well, I just want to draw attention as well to what's going on at Reading. I know it's a different example but mm. Reading they're in the relegation zone of League One they're an example of why how football should be kind of reined in probably should have been reined in sooner from an FFP point of view yeah. their owner has absolutely run them into the ground and this is once proud Premier League team that is now on the verge mm. of, of going bust pretty much and you know who'd have thought that from Premier League's rich prem, you know their rich Premier League history Reading from the mm. past I've only, I've only remembered them kind of from how they've performed in in the Premier League recently I didn't realize they'd slipped as low as they had and it's only now where their fans protesting at the game against Port Vale this weekend has drawn attention to how much they've slipped. So Reading, as well, is another example, really, of financial mismanagement. And I get why FFP has to be put in place. And there's a whole yeah. conversation about fit and proper persons tests for club ownership yeah. as well. That's a big issue, too. So mm. at the other end of the spectrum, that's what can happen, I think, if you know if sustainability isn't managed. So I get mm. it. It just needs to be fine-tuned, really, doesn't it, this FFP situation? Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be there to protect rather than to just penalise. And that's not to yeah. say you can get away with everything. I don't know, mate. Maybe I'm being a bit silly because I don't have the answer, but I'm being critical of the, the current answers. But I, all I know is this current iteration, looking at the situation with clubs like Everton and Forest, it's, it's not right, is it? It's not right when no. you see what else is going on in the league. I mean, there are ways that I think it's quite interesting. Newcastle cannot go out and buy someone right now yeah. when their squad is absolutely decimated because they spent too much already. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I, that I makes think sense. that's okay. Yeah, that, that, that does seem to make sense to me. 
But taking points off Everton right now when they're building a stadium, I just I find it bizarre. Yeah. We'll move on to wrap up the pod from a topic that we didn't touch on last week, actually, and that's just the the level of misogyny levelled at women in the game, specifically pundits and, you know, the name that springs mm. to mind is Jerry Barton and some of the mm. the things that he said publicly about mm. the level of, I think he's questioning the level of quality of female pundits and also whether they can have an opinion on the men's game because they haven't played in the men's game. I've got to kind of draw a line under this and say, you know, the growth of the women's game lately has been so huge. This feels like it could potentially step back a little bit. And I think it's up to football fans to kind of put their foot down and go, stop talking rubbish, Barton, because there's a, as many poor male pundits as there are female pundits, in my opinion. <laughs> I don't think mm. it's a gender thing. I think he's just mm. picking the wrong fight in some ways, isn't he? What do you make of it? I think he's picking the right fight for him, his demographic, and keeping himself relevant. That's the saddest truth of it. That yeah. I don't think this is a statement about football going backwards. I think it's a statement of where society is at as a whole. And football can be a big reflection of that. It is frustrating, you are right, when you say that we've seen such progress and joy from the women's game recently that actually it felt like we were starting to build a bit more of an inclusivity within football and actually the yeah. fact that opportunities are out there for all, all pundits is massive now that's not to say that there should be this uh, excessive tokenism and getting people in for the sake of getting people in I, I don't agree with that but the right person for the job is the right person for the job that is based yeah. completely on who they are their journalistic quality has nothing to do with their experience within the game, in my opinion. I, I don't think it boils down to that. And this, to me, if we're looking at that case in particular, is a desperate cry for relevance from a, a, a guy yeah. who, let's be honest, if you are aligning yourself with his views and you want to really push his character, you've got a lot of questions to ask. This is a guy who obviously has served time for various issues. On, on the pitch was a, a horrible player to watch has been a terrible manager who I think has had <laughs> been fired from jobs for abusing his own players and stuff, allegedly. It, okay, great. I, I couldn't care less what he has to say. The sad thing of it is how quickly that funnels into the free pe press that we have and social mm. media spirals into quick clickbait clips of errors from women within football. And somehow that becomes a narrative. I find it really difficult to not get myself into twitter wars on a regular basis with people who are just yeah. ignorant and stupid and looking for a few seconds to criticize a female pundit because she's female now i don't know i don't want to just go off on a rant i want to allow you to talk to me about it as well mike <laughs> so apologies but i i find it infuriating because okay there are examples of people that i don't agree with within football any aluko yeah. for example gets loads of stick for for some of our takes in football and i'll be honest yeah a lot of the times i don't agree with it I also don't agree with half the stuff that Jermaine Genus says. It's got nothing to do with gender. It's just that's a person yeah. who has a job in the public eye where they are paid to express their opinion. You're not going to agree with everything they've said. If you're not agreeing with them purely because they're a woman, then you are stupid. Like, yeah. That's just, that's just you've missed the point entirely. I think the accusation from a lot of these kinds, kinds of people is that they're being included in the men's game for tokenism and for inclusivity and that's all and nothing else. And they're kind of questioning their skill at the job. When actually, I think it's a stylistic preference sometimes. I prefer some commentators over others. I prefer mm. to not listen to Martin Keogh, for example, 
But I'm happy <laughs> to listen to Emma Hayes talk about football forever because she's a very knowledgeable woman, you know, and she knows the mm. job inside out. So, yeah, it's it's this lack of qualification that's perceived from, from women in the game. It's almost like the game of football isn't the same game for women in their eyes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Tactics and the way the game's played is universal. doesn't matter what level, doesn't matter what gender. And I, I think that just makes the argument completely ridiculous. And, and how many... Okay, we're, we're doing a football podcast right now. And all right, we're not the most successful football podcast that's out there, but there are plenty others that are out there with people that have never played football themselves. But you want to hear what they have to say about it. But that's okay. But when it's a woman, it's not. Yeah. I find that bizarre. And I also, like I said to you, I saw a clip going around of Melissa Reddy kind of stumbling over her words a little bit on live mm. TV and it being tagged of, this is why women shouldn't be talking about football. Look at her. She's floundering. Melissa Reddy is a fantastic journalist who knows far more about football than most people out there. And yeah. definitely the majority of people that are criticizing her on Twitter. And for some reason, it's used as a stick to beat her with when she makes a mistake on live TV in a pressurized situation. I said to you, but then you've got someone like Chris Kamara, who, again, I love Chris Kamara. I'm not criticizing him. Made an entire career at fumbling yeah. on live TV and making mistakes. And when it was him, it was endearing. When it's a woman, it's they don't belong in football. And it's it's a bizarre logic. You've got daughters yourself, Mike, who are getting into football with you. And they should be able to feel free to enjoy both the WSL and the men's yeah. game. And not worry that actually they'll never be taken seriously for their opinions. Because idiots like Joey Barton have too much of a voice. It's a really sad reality of it. Do you know what the cultural moment of, of Chris Kamara being turned to by Jeff Stelling saying there's been a sending off, hasn't there? And Chris has gone, has there? That's just classic, like, <laughs> Chris Kamara. Know, it, it is endearing. And I think if a, a female yeah. pundit did that, it would be everywhere for all the wrong reasons, which is ridiculous, Absolutely. you know, they're human beings. Um, and I also think by the same logic, that means Ian Wright shouldn't talk about the WSL. Like, mm. does he not? have a, a say on the game because it's women playing is it different to see for, from his point of view makes no sense at all really passion for the game kind of shines through from from every aspect of the game and every gender really doesn't it yeah absolutely it, i think once you start putting divides in like that and saying you can't do this if you've not been there that's a dangerous precedent to set you do that yeah. with a, a gender divide and where does that spiral in, and how far what other industries does that take over it's shocking it only seems to be allowed in football <laughs> And it seems like there's got to be this True. weird male dominance protected. It seems like society in a lot of ways is ready to move forward. But football is like this thing that we've got to protect and keep it in a man's domain. I think it's toxic masculinity. It's finest, isn't it, Mike? Yeah, it is. Um, going to try and finish the podcast on a more positive note. How are you feeling about, <laughs> about Villa's prospects now after that uh, frustrating draw against Everton? Who are they playing next? They've got a bit of a break now, haven't they? You just said to me, I want to end on a more positive note. Let's talk about Villa's nil-nil draw with Everton. Uh, no, I, I am still feeling really optimistic. I think it's going to be an interesting month for us as a whole. Obviously, we've got Chelsea in the FA Cup to come. And I'm really glad that we're still in that. January, I think, is going to be quieter than a lot of Villa fans would have liked. Because if we are looking to kick on for top four, we, we probably do need a bit more depth. Our injuries are really catching up with us. I mean, you look at our bench... For, for the Everton game, we had two keepers on there. Tielemans was coming back and that was big for us, but obviously he isn't fully match fit yet. This, it's difficult. It is difficult at the moment. It feels like other teams are starting to pick up some momentum. We've got to keep up, but we had a really strong December. 
So I'm filled with confidence with that. Still, we've got the current Premier League manager of the month. But I saw what curse that was on Man United in November as well. <laughs> so you never know. Um, yeah. No, obviously, we're still optimistic. We're still pushing for, for top four. We've got the Conference League to come back in in a couple of months as well. So it'd be nice to continue our yeah. European form as well. So it's a great time still. We're looking at this young right back that we're going to bring in in the summer at the moment as well. There's a few other rumours flown around. Emil Smith-Rowe is not going away. That one's, that's one I keep reading, that he might be available on loan, which would be good depth for us as well. I think we've just got to be smart over the next few weeks, be active in the market where we can be and not over-exhort ourselves because we've seen what's happening to Forrest and Everton at the moment. But yeah. the most exciting news for Villa this week, new kit deal with Adidas at last. Oh, do you know oh, what? I, I, love, I love the design of the Castor kits, but this one obviously is notorious for just being soaking wet half the time. Right. So <laughs> it'd be nice to I see the, the three stripes down the sleeve of the Villa shirt. I think that would oh, work quite yeah. nicely. I don't love the design of the Castore kits that much. I've got a couple of them this season, to be fair, but mainly because it's Villa, not because they're the best shirts I've ever seen. And when your owner is majority owner of Adidas, it would be nice to think that you've got that deal over the over the line sooner. And it's worth a lot. I think it's tripled our money for our kit deal as well, which is fantastic. And yeah. this year, the Adidas kits from this year have been beautiful. The majority of them, like, you, you know, I've been rocking two of the Roma kits this year. They're fantastic. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see what they do with Villa. I think that's excellent. And obviously the new badge is launching as well at the end of the season. That's going to be huge for us as well. So, yeah, it's, it, there's some good stuff going around. It's 150 years for Villa fans. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's a big change this season, isn't it? I think in, in perspective and, and optics for the club from outside and a kit deal like that makes a big difference in making the club seem... Mm more like it's competing at the highest level because I imagine it's going to be a big deal too. So, yeah, yeah happy days. Absolutely. I'm, I'm rooting for Villa, mate. I'm gutted they drop points purely because I just don't want Liverpool, City, you know, Arsenal, the usual suspects to be in the title hunt. <laughs> I want Villa to be right up there till the very end. So, let's <laughs> we'll hope that manifests. Uh, thanks for joining yeah. us. If you're listening, whatever podcast uh, format you're listening to us on, hop over to YouTube. As always, I say this, just go and see us in video format and comment and like and share to your heart's content. That would be amazing for our growth. Until next time, Miles, thanks very much. See you soon, mate. Thanks, man.